Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Why do we need wisdom in our lives and how can it help us during times of uncertainty? These are huge questions and my guest is the right person to help answer these and many other deep and meaningful questions. Dr. Michael Mead is a renowned author, scholar of mythology, anthropology, and psychology. He is also a skilled storyteller who often drums while telling the story. The New York Times has said he writes brilliantly and that he is a master. Alice Walker has said he is magical and profound, unlike anyone else one is likely to encounter, and that he is one of the greatest living teachers of our time. Michael doesn't just work with his head, but he also works with his hands and feet to build a world of justice, understanding, kindness, and connection. He is the founder of Mosaic Multicultural Foundation, a nonprofit network of artists, activists, and community builders that encourages greater understanding between diverse peoples. On a personal note, I have been learning from Michael's wisdom since the 90s, and his work has helped me immensely, both professionally and personally. So join Michael and me as we do a deep dive into how wisdom can help us during times of uncertainty. Dr. Michael Mead, who I will be referring to as Michael, welcome to Super Psyched. Great to be with you, Adam. Right on. So I'd like to kick things off by mentioning that besides being homo sapiens or homo erectus, you have also noted that we are homo symbolicus in that we search for meaning. We are meaning-based animals. Can you share what that means specifically during this time when people are anxious, depressed, even nihilistic? There, in, is there any way this externally imposed sabbatical could be a time of enriched meaning? Well, I think of it as a um, informal initiation or rite of passage. So my sense is that whenever we find ourselves disoriented, blocked, or in deeply confusing or threatening situations, the soul thinks it's an initiation. Because my understanding is that the human soul is constantly trying to transform. And, and, the, and the archetypal dynamic of transformation would be rite of passage. And so what, part of what happens in a rite of passage or initiation process is there's a breaking open of the heart and the soul and the mind. That's why sometimes people will have a scar or something. It's to remind them that their heart broke open, that their psyche opened. And what happens and there's always some pain involved. There's always some descent involved. But what happens then when it breaks open, um, a new symbol appears. Um, because as you were saying, the human psyche operates through symbolic process. And so the new symbol occurs. And along with the symbol comes fresh ideas and an increase of vital energy that was otherwise trapped inside 
the sense of self that was too small. So Carl Jung said, when, when you lose your job, the soul throws a party. Well, I don't know if that's true for everyone. He was rather up a class. So, <laughs> so he probably could withstand the results of losing his job. And right now, many people are losing their jobs. Oh. But the point was really that something in the soul starts to wake up when we are stopped from our normal ways of being and normal ways of thinking and seeing. And so, and that always involves a symbol. So right now in the United States, you have this amazing controversy going on over wearing or not wearing a mask. And so there's the symbol. There's the surprising symbol um, th that people are all seeing in their own way. Because a symbol, um, by its very nature, means that each person sees in the way that they are able to see. And so the tree of life is one of the greatest symbols in, in human imagination and in earthly history. And yet everybody sees that tree. You say tree of life, everybody immediately has their own image. Yep. You say the dog entered the story, everybody has their own dog. That comes in. So, dog. So, uh, so this homo symbolicus is a really important part of the human psyche. It's an important aspect of education, and it's a tremendously important element for building not just personal continuity, but community. Gosh, you know, and I apologize, I couldn't resist the what dog. Uh, anybody familiar with Michael's stories might know about the what dog comment, but that's uh, kind of an inside joke there. Um, you know, I'm thinking about it was either Rumi or Hafez who said, you know, that we have to dance when our heart is broken open, dance to the middle of the fire, dance till you're perfectly free. And I don't know to whom that's attributable. You might. Hafez. That's Hafez. Okay. That's Hafez. And that's just, yeah. uh, and that's timeless. And that's what you're speaking to even now during these uncertain times that we have to dance with it. So dance is also a reference to ritual. So that, for instance, um, I have a good friend who went and researched his ancestry down in southern Mexico. And turns out his mother is from a tribe down there. And that tribe now is in is abject poverty. They live in caves. They don't even have gardens or plots of land where they can grow food. And, and sometimes they don't have enough corn to fill the children, to feed the children. And so they mix earth in with the corn. So they're literally eating earth or eating dirt in a certain sense. And he was visiting there and he was appalled by all of that poverty and, and the brutality involved in it. And somewhere in the process, I guess he, through a translator, asked, how do you, how do you bear this? And their answer was, dance or die, Oof. dance or die. And it turned out that what they meant was stay in the rituals of life or you are truly dead, even if you live in a mansion. And so dance is a reference on one level to the ritual way of being in life. And then one other idea that I really like is when a person is really dancing, and I don't, I don't mean making some steps and saying, how do I look? You know, that's not, that's not dancing. That's like practicing or something. But in, when a person dances, the dancer is taken into the other world. Because to really dance, you have to dance with your whole self, your heart, your mind, your soul, your body. And so to really dance is to be um, in ecstasy, really, to be pulled out of daily life. And so dancing is one of the ways to revive one's own spirit. And uh, 
Well, you know, you, you knew James Hillman, the great mm. psychologist. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, one time I had to take a job in a, in a corporation. I, just, I had four children. I needed some money. Someone offered me a job and I was working in this strange corporation. And I told Hillman, it was driving me crazy. <laughs> and I thought I might lose my mind. And he said, whenever you feel that way, just go in the, in the bathroom and dance. So, all right. So now I'm in the bathroom quite often dancing. People figured out that I was doing something <laughs> in there. And I had to explain to everybody, you know, the way you're doing this is driving me crazy. And I'm dancing to, to stay in my own self. Right. And, yeah, I imagine you were a little self-conscious about it at times because of what people might be thinking. And yet you, it sounds like you also danced with reckless abandon at the same time. Yeah. And so it was like a, a symbolic reality that I had to dance to stay in touch with myself. So if we apply it to the period we're in right now, um, singing, dancing, anything that gets us uh, so that we're being carried by something unseen is really helpful now when the realities are so punishing and so disturbing and threatening. And so dance or die. I love that idea. And one of the things that we think about is what is within our control during these times when so much is not and our ability to dance, assuming our bodies will allow us to. And even if they don't, maybe there's an alternative and another way to allow our spirit to dance. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who's one of the leading authorities worldwide on post-traumatic stress, has found that dance is actually a legitimate vehicle through which uh, trauma can be processed. So what, we, what cultures have known historically as being corroborated uh, by modern science, it's just lovely when that happens. Um, I'm, <laughs> and I'm, I'm even thinking just kind of on a very basic level, the, the Michael Jordan documentary, uh, about his last season is called the last dance. And, uh, I think that was a very, uh, a beautiful title. Uh, that's what they referred to that time as being, uh, the last dance. And he was certainly an archetypal King. Um, you know, Michael, one of the things, one of the great joys of listening to you is, you often reveal the deeper meaning of words and meaning appears to be all around us, yet we fail to notice it. One of the, one of the great gifts of you is that you pointed out, uh, one of my favorite examples recently was that you looked at the word understanding and saw it as standing under. And just the mere mentioning of that word causes me to see the world differently. I'm wondering, are there any other either etymological uh, traces of words or words that we could look at differently that might help us cope with this time that we're trying to just get a handle on? The one that comes to mind. Uh, so I mentioned being in a collective rite of passage. Like uh, living in the modern world is almost like entering the world in the midst of a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. There's so much transition going on. There's so much rapid change. And so the steps of a, of a rite of passage classically are separation, which, of course, we're all acting out with social distancing. And even the mask separates us visually from each other. So that's a, the first step of initiation. It's like we're literally in it. Um, quarantine is the same thing. And then the second step is often referred to as liminality. And lemon is a Latin word. And the usual interpretation is betwixt and between. 
So you depart from somewhere, you separate from normal life, and you're on your way to another life or another station in life or another understanding of life. But you have to go through the in-between area where it's neither one thing yet nor the other. And so they call that limen, liminality, because limen is the Latin word for the bottom, uh, the threshold of a doorway, right? So the, the thing you step over is the limit, which we translate as threshold. So then you can say the in-between step in any transformation is going through a threshold. And so then I was thinking about that and I was actually talking about it and thinking, well, that threshold can be quite wide. Like now we find out we might have to social distance for months on end. So the threshold has gotten bigger. The liminal space has gotten bigger. But then I was thinking if you're standing on the limit, then what's below the limit is subliminal. Subliminal. So it's very similar to understanding. One of the places to look for how do we handle this is inside and down. What we need is not just, we need a vaccine, or at least many people think so. That's controversial too. Everything's controversial Mm. because we're betwixt and between. But anyway, we need healing uh, treatments. Uh, But in the meantime, if, if we think of it as a rite of passage, a descent is part of it, a going down. Now, a lot of people are feeling down because of what's going on. There's more pressure on everybody. If we allow ourselves to descend, then something subliminal or something in the unconscious uh, that's trying to become conscious uh, may be exactly what we need. Uh, You know, the old idea is um, (laughs) everything we don't know is in our unconscious. And whenever we're stuck, It means what we know is not enough. And so the next thing is to turn to where we don't know, which psychologically can be called the unconscious. And so in dreams now, I find all these things that seem to be trying to enter into my awareness because, well, and I hear this from therapists and I hear this from other people, people's dreaming lives are really intensified. And dreams are one way that ideas and symbols and images that are healing and helpful come up, come up. And the other way is just to recognize that we're in a kind of descent and some of the answers are below us, especially when it comes to personal healing and personal growth. Absolutely. Wow. And just how the iceberg image is so apropos of this conversation that our consciousness really is like the tip of an iceberg and the wisdom really lies beneath and we really do need to tolerate the dissent, the willingness to go down, which is not really something we appreciate in this culture. And as we're even getting in this conversation about uh, the lemon, I find myself thinking about two uh, people uh, that you wouldn't ordinarily pair up, uh, Dr. Seuss and Admiral Stockdale. Uh, Dr. Seuss in Oh, the Places You'll Go described the in-between space, the place uh, that, that that's a, just an awful place to be. And uh, in limbo in terms of lemon. And then uh, Admiral Stockdale, who, like you, was uh, in the Vietnam War, and he was, I believe, the highest ranking officer with the longest stay at a POW camp of eight years. And he noticed that people who were willing to just be with what was going on versus those who were not able to accept limbo, uh, those who were tolerating it and willing to 
get in touch with their truths in the midst of such a crisis fared far better. And I think that's a really good page from the playbook for right now. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think because this is superimposed, and I say superimposed because to me, a lot of us were trying to figure out what in the world can we do about the global climate crisis, right? The biggest crisis anyone could think of you know, in recent history or maybe all of history because it involves everything, everywhere and everybody. That's a huge crisis, which had the sense of it was coming down on everybody. And then it's in the middle of that, that COVID-19 happens. Now you have a crisis uh, at the human level that affects or can affect all human beings. So now we have more coming down and it's getting more personal. And then you have the killing of George Floyd Mm. in public Mm. with tremendous symbolism of the knee on his neck and him saying, I can't breathe and calling for his mother, all these things that are very symbolic that people saw over and over again and had to experience and, and, and realize, yeah, there's something on all of our necks, that there's something wrong, that humanity has been broken in some way, because humanity includes all humans. And if all humans are not invited, then humanity is broken. So it seems to me all that stuff is coming down. And then there's all the struggles. What do you do about social injustice and so on, which has to be dealt with even in the middle of a pandemic, because it's that important going back to the idea of symbolism, meaning and truth, even in the midst of a pandemic, it has to be dealt with. Then you have the pandemic itself and waiting for us when we get through this is the climate crisis. (laughs) So, so there's all that. And then I think what happens underneath and this gets back to the idea of rite of passage, is everybody's carrying their wounds and their traumas. To be human is to be wounded. And everybody has them. And they always need healing. Even if we've worked on them, they need more healing. And so what I see going on and what I hear is people's individual wounds uh, are are rising up and insisting on being attended to. And that means the fears and the terrors and the anguishes and the angers. And then in the relationships, from what I hear, that's happened very commonly. And then people are kind of trapped with their family and the family wounds, which are elements of fate, that's what they used to call them. Uh, So all the wounds are rising up. And so this is the time to deal with that. This is the time, like you were saying, to just accept. I'm feeling as rejected as I felt as when I was a child. I'm feeling it again, you know, or I'm feeling abandoned, really common right now, feeling abandoned. And as far as I know, everyone has abandonment issues. Right. Such a problem. Partially because mom and dad could never give us all all we wanted. Because what we want is to transform into ourselves. And so in initiatory terms, there were always two things trying to happen during the rite of passage. One is the initiate. Uh, wakes up to to who or what she or he is. The something inside that's our natural way of being, the gifts that we have that are trying to awaken and only awaken under pressure. If everything, no one ever transforms relaxing on a couch, it doesn't happen. We transform under pressure. 
And so the, those gifts try, try to become more pronounced. Um, and by gifts, I mean, let's, we're talking about singing and dancing. You know, in the contemporary world, people think maybe you shouldn't sing unless you can win the voice. Whereas everybody has a voice and everyone should sing. And there's a certain freedom in singing. And it opens the, what is that, the sixth chakra, uh, which is really the connective energy between the heart and the mind flows better once we're singing, all that kind of thing. So people have their own gift for singing and, and using that is not simplistic. But then the other side of it is that the wounds awaken and need to be attended to. And I have found myself uh, going back to issues of abandonment and just spending a lot of time alone and going, oh, I feel, again, old, deep, preverbal sense of abandonment. And the idea is you keep, initiation means you keep going back through the same territory and becoming more and more of yourself. We didn't ask for it, but here we are. We didn't, yeah, this is not the crisis we asked for. And yet to squander this crisis by just reducing ourselves to our lesser selves would be a missed opportunity. But Michael, you've described this as a time when anger, fear, and hate are on the rise, such as what we were talking about with the tragedy of George Floyd. And it imposes a threat on our ability to imagine deeply, both individually and collectively. The imagination you describe is not the type that causes our brain to engage in catastrophic thinking, but as I understand it to be the helpful out of the box type thinking, making this a time when our imagination is needed more than ever. Yet the parts of our brain responsible for fear and anger and hate are physiologically a bit of a journey from each other. So um, kind of wondering what's important about imagination, especially now, and how can we transcend the fear, hate, and anger and go to a place of imagination during this time? So one way to describe the arising fears and angers and, and the hatred is it's a return of the repressed. So, you know, the racial inequalities, the social injustice, the horrendous racism and bigotry of the past has been there all along (laughs) underneath all those Confederate statues, you know, all over the country and so on. And so something happens. All this pressure comes down. The daily world stops. Stores close. Time stops. People have to stop. And what happens is the repressed comes out. It returns. And so it's the absolute right time for healing on that collective level and on the personal level, because you can't separate the two. And, uh, you know, I've studied initiation for like 30 some odd years, because to me, it is the dynamic of transformation. And so what they used to say in the old tribal uh, traditional cultures is when the young people are going through initiation, everything stops. Because if the young people don't transform into being awakened adults, everything will eventually stop anyway. And so, uh, so, so then there's two parts to it. There's how do you transform a society? And then how do you transform, awaken and transform the individual? And it turns out that they're connected. Um, and to weave imagination into it, um, no matter how good the intentions are, There is no committee or political process that can solve the kind of issues we are confronted with now. Not to say that we don't need the political process and we don't need 
uh, progressive social action and all that. It's just that on its own, it can't do it. And if you look at how they struggle, they often lack imagination. Imagination, they used to say, was the deepest power of the soul. Imagination is our automatic connection to creativity. And to create means to bring in something that wasn't there, to bring in something new. And so um, imagination is the only way we can get all the way through and arrive at a different society or arrive at a greater, more awakened sense of ourselves. And it's back to the symbol. The symbol is really an aspect of imagination. Nothing exists that wasn't first imagined. And so the imagining of the next culture or the next society, and this was known in certain initiatory uh, tribal groups, that the young people working together with the initiated elders and so on were going to find a new imagination that was going to be woven into their world. And so when I'm feeling constricted or abandoned or too narrow or too afraid, what has happened is I have lost my sense of greater imagination. And here's a tricky but surprising thing. Inside anger, if a person stays in touch with themselves in the anger, there's an image in there. Inside fear, there's also an image. So this is, I don't need, it's hard to explain, but when I was working in uh, prisons with um, violent, so-called violent criminals, really, uh, it was, I've worked in, in women's prisons and men's prisons, but in men's prison, prisons, the issue is instant rage. You know, in a modern prison, you have to go from how we're speaking to full-on rage in less than 10 seconds or you can't survive. And so you have all these practice rageaholics in there. And I was trying to help work on how does someone who leaves prison get themselves out of the rage condition. And as we were working on it, one thing I noticed was hardly any of those who um, had this kind of violent background with a lot of uh, available rage, they had very little images. They have very, they didn't have images to work with. They were bereft. Yeah. And often that's a sign of having been abused as a child. And they think 70 to 75% of those in prison are abused. So someone who's severely abused can lose their connection to imagination. So I found that I had to help them find, I couldn't provide, I couldn't provide them with an image because it doesn't work as well. I'd help them find inside the anger, resentment, all that stuff, their own image that they could connect to when they felt the heat coming up. And it was a really good process. I mean, the first step had to be, they had to learn how to take a step back because the rage propels you forward. And so the first thing was to step back. And then the second thing was step back into an image that gives you a way to breathe and a way to settle and not have to explode. And so I guess that's how I learned that inside any intense emotion, there is an image trying to get our attention. You know, I use the word bereft, meaning uh, that there was a scarcity, but bereft also implies grief. And as you're describing this, under the rage, there's so much sadness, so much grief, that the rage is really, I imagine, a cover-up for so much of that unattended to bereftness or grief. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, that feels right. Although there's another aspect of rage. Rage uh, typically, so 
I like the idea that all emotions have a motion, right? The word emotion is just E with motion. Right. And right. So, um, so for instance, anger stands you up. You get angry, you're up. Right. Uh, whereas sorrow bends you down. Right. Humiliation literally means to lose your arms, lose your ability to hold on to things. Huh. Um, and so each of the emotions, uh, has imagery in it, right? So you say, uh, uh, sorrow is a river because the tears flow. Uh, grief is an ocean in which you can get lost. And so that you can see the images inside. Oh, yeah. the water. So rage, the function of rage, in other words, you can't get rid of the emotions. So why don't we find out what they think they're about? And the function of rage is to generate a tremendous amount of self-protective or aggressive energy because you feel you are being attacked by something much bigger than you. So that would be the function of rage. Um, so for instance, uh, well, you can imagine it as a parent. You're a parent and you have a couple of your little children with you and all, all of a sudden you're all endangered. And, it's, and, and if it's really a big danger, like once I wound up confronting an enormous bear with my four kids and, uh, and we had to get through there because the tide was coming up. We were home. Anyway, so you can feel Amazing. how enraged you could get if you had to protect children uh, and you were the only possible protection and you had to drive away something bigger than yourself. So anyway, rage is dangerous, but, you, but it's there for a reason, perhaps. Absolutely. Um, Rage at its best is protective. So is anger, right? And the basic energy of anger is, okay, you've stepped too close now. As people say, you're in my face. Well, you, usually they're not literally in your face. They've come into the area because they say that a person's spirit extends to the end of their fingertips. So you can feel invaded right out here because the energy has already crossed the line uh, where my energy is, is, is residing. Um, and so anger's first move is protection. And I think most of us, though, have our ideas of anger are affected by rage from parents or other adults, which then colors our understanding of anger. That's one way to look at it. But uh, anger is, uh, according to child psychologists, the first emotion, because the first thing is to protect oneself. Anyway, the idea is to wind up with some healthy anger, which means I can protect myself and therefore could do it, protect others also without losing it. Uh, and also healthy grief. Um, and I'm with you. I think grief is very, very deep. And in terms of the return of the repressed, modern cultures repress grief. You don't see people weeping openly at funerals. Typically, in a modern funeral is rather mechanical, typically. And so, um, so in this return of the repressed, the sorrow comes back along with the angers, along with all the un, unex, uh, otherwise unexpressed stuff. And so it's really a, an amazing kind of territory for psychological awakening. And one way to imagine initiation is the opening of the heart. That you know, so in initiation, there's always some pain. 
in growth is pain, right? Everything has growing pains. Initiation has its pain too. But part of the pain is the breaking open up, breaking open of the heart. Because imagination is considered to live in the heart. It's actually, it's in the heart behind the heart or the arm of immense possible learning and awakening. And I think one of the awakenings that's trying to happen and why Black Lives Matter and all the issues of social injustice matter right now is because I think we're trying to awaken a very deep ground of humanity that includes everybody and involves everybody. Because when we get through the COVID crisis and when we get a little bit better handle on the social justice crisis, here's the climate crisis waiting. And we're no way we're going to deal with the climate crisis if we haven't a greater sense of involved and integrated, uh, interrelated humanity. And no way we're going to deal with it if we don't have a sense of imagination. I think the climate crisis is asking us to get a greater imagination and a grander worldview. I think that. That's so brilliant. They say sunlight is the greatest disinfectant and the word disinfectant seems a little bit ironic at the moment, uh, especially considering we're dealing with a virus. And yet COVID has served as a form of sunlight to show us, to reveal so many of these things that we've been repressing over the years. And they, lo and behold, they're emerging. Literally. I mean, unless someone is in denial or gotten very confused, literally, um, the pandemic says we are all in this together, especially when you consider people can be transmitting the virus when they're asymptomatic. We're all in this together. It, it, it's the literal truth of the pandemic and the message that I think uh, people were starting to get from climate crisis. And therefore, it's also the better understanding of social injustice. And then I add one thing. We're all in it together, and each person is unique and was born with some kind of genius, because genius means the spirit that's already there, and the solutions that we're looking for are not heroic. The idea that when someone says, only I can fix it, I, I hope people have learned how dangerous that is. Uh, oh, my God. And so we're, we're, I think we're being, you know, it's easy to say and hard to live with, but we're being called to awaken uh, to a greater awareness and, and connection to our own genius, which the Greek word for happiness, ancient Greek word was eudaimonia, which meant to satisfy your daimon or your genius. And so the more we know about our genius, the, the happy, happier we are, even in a troubled time. Um, and then the... Real changes occur. The old statement, no change at the level of the soul, no change at the level of the world. Enough people get this sense of being part of the greater humanity and the necessity of being learning how to be in it together. But that means contributing our unique genius, more possibility that change occurs. You're throwing down so many great insights that I think are immediately usable to the listener. And you're also throwing out some paradoxes. It's as if we're dreaming while we're awake. And I, I think that to some extent, a, a good analyst would say that to some extent, sure, we are dreaming while we're awake. Uh, the paradoxes of the masks, which uh, hide 
who we are, and yet paradoxically reveal that we care about other people. The presence of a virus that is actually potentially acting as a disinfectant. Um, thinking about the trickster in um, kind of mythology and how this is just showing up rampantly. And you also speak about wisdom and genius. And one of the things that you've said, and I think it's so good, is that older does not necessarily mean wiser. And I was wondering if you could speak about wisdom, how it's acquired, especially during this time when fear might subvert our abilities to acquire it. Yeah, it's a good thing to be thinking about. I mean, for me, it starts with the idea that uh, modern culture, especially Western culture, people get older and older. I mean, we're all living to much older ages. I'm older than I I ever thought I would be. Uh, And I might even keep going, you know, and and, uh, the average life expectancy up until COVID-19 has been has been growing. Um, but people get older and older without getting wiser and wiser. The African proverb is white hair doesn't make the elder. And so then the question becomes, you know, what is the elder or what would be characteristics of an elder? And interestingly enough, one of the first characteristics of an elder is that someone who has fallen and figured out how to get back up. So the elder isn't someone that's so wise they never fall, uh, because it's, in falling, we're falling into ourselves. And so if we accept that falling, then we fall not into an endless abyss, which I thought was the case when I, I was afraid to fall, but we fall into the ground of our being. And so wisdom partially comes from the ground of our being. When we are being who we, who we are in our essence, we have wisdom. So that, so there's a, uh, there's a great, a, a tribe that I was studying along the Amazon River. I like the tribes along the Amazon River uh, in many ways, but one is they are really sp- relatively small tribes and they each have their own entire cosmology, their explanation of all the planets and all the stars, like 90 people in the tribe, and they have an explanation of everything in the cosmos. It's really human imagination. That's natural. Anyway, this one tribe has this idea um, that... Um, that dreams are coming into us directly from the center of the cosmos. That when the body soul, they call it the body soul, goes to sleep, the dream soul goes to the center of the cosmos. This is just unadulterated mm, so human imagination and, and gets a message. And the message is to be brought back into daily life. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, it depends, the message has to move through the human psyche so it has to get tangled up in the psyche. And so you find yourself dealing or dreaming about a girl in the third grade. Yeah. But, but the message is about love. Sure. <laughs> so that's the dream. So then the dream comes through. And, and when the dream comes through, it's called the word in the moment. The word in the moment. Like a mm-hmm. story appearing from the other world. And then the word in the moment is an opportunity to become more aware of one's inner wisdom one's own wisdom. And so they call that second part of learning from the dream, they call it the the word of wisdom. Um, And so they're saying that we're connected to the center of the cosmos because we dream and we have imagination and that we have access to wisdom. And so therefore they say everyone is wise 
And then they have to add one more thing because it's always in threes, not in two. <laughs> right. And the third thing is called the crosswise. Everyone's wise and everyone has on their soul something <sighs> crosswise. Otherwise, we all would be awakened geniuses. We'd have uh, solved COVID already. We, we, we would have a more just society. We'd all be dancing more and we'd all be making love more. You yep. know? But there's something crosswise. And uh, so uh, in ancient India, the word for uh, one of the words uh, for wisdom is, is vidya, vidya, which also is the word from which we get video. Uh, so it's how we see. And everybody has vidya, a wise way of seeing. Uh, and then everybody has a vidya, the thing that cancels and crosses out the vision. So, so. This is the paradox. We each have a transformative vision that according to the old, you know, stories was a seed planting in us before we were born. And the troubles of life are supposed to crack open the shell of that seed. So this inner wisdom, vidya, uh, vision comes out. Yes, everybody has that. And then everybody has a cross wise thing that has to be removed. So, so that anyway, to me, and, that's and the way. there's so many thoughts that are going through my head as you're describing this fascinating phenomenon. And I'm thinking that every genius has their blind spots and it almost implies the necessity of us as a collective rather than as an individual. And Carl Jung said, you need friends of the soul or friends of the self. And a friends of the soul is someone who knows you're crosswise right knows your wisdom and knows your crosswise and says there you go again take it easy you know we know which hole hole you're going to fall in you'll always fall in the same hole so we're supposed to be helping each other with our crosswise elements um one more idea because i'm really back into all the rites of passage initiation stuff because i think it applies so immediately right now and so i found this one tribe in africa um I like to study the rights they have and the way, way they talk about their own rights, their imagination for what they're doing. And this one tribe, I haven't found it elsewhere, but it applies everywhere, says that when we're initiating the girls into women and the boys into men, we're waking up the old sage in them. Mm. The initiation of youth is to awaken the mm. wisdom inside the young person. And then they say, and when we're initiating the olders into elders, we're waking up the dream of their life that will keep them young as they grow old. So, oh I mean, gosh. you that know, so perfect. You can read several books and then you find that little paragraph and go, that's it. You know, that, I could use that for 10 years. So, <laughs> so when, when we're young, we have an inner wisdom. We have a wise word inside that's trying to come out. And, um, and the unfortunate thing is culture doesn't know that anymore. There are no formal rites of passage. Typically <laughs> there aren't people waiting to bless us when the wise word wakes up. And so these things are stuck inside, but I think they're closer to the surface when we're in trouble. And so uh, there's a wisdom waiting to awaken in us, regardless of what we've done. And, um, and, and then at the same time, for those that are older, 
the idea isn't is to get older and wiser, but the wisdom of the elders involves an intimate connection to the dream of life. Actually, a connection to the origins of life. So the elders are supposed to get younger psychologically as they get older. When I was learning um, certain aspects of Cuban music and Cuban ritual, much of which comes from Africa originally, they have this great thing where they have a lot of good drummers and, and then people, as soon as they hear the drum, they want to dance. And so, the, and they'll drum all night long or for a long time and people are out there dancing and the young people come out and they have all the new steps and the hip hop and all everything that, you know, you could do some of it you can't do because it's so challenging. And then the drummers get a little tired and the dancers get a little tired. And that's when the elders come out and take over the instruments. And in, ca- in, in the case of the drummers, uh, whereas the typical drummers are sitting up and playing, uh, when the elders come out, they lay the drum on the ground and they sit on the drum and they begin to play in the dark of the night and they play until the sun comes up. And so in that process, everybody understands the elders are just waiting for the right minute to bring the right moment to bring out the rhythm rhythms that they have. And those are the rhythms that takes everybody from the darkness to the dawn. Mm. A little social ritual that has information about everybody. So I think that's the kind of stuff that's trying to waken in us again. You know, uh, so many thoughts, but one of them is that you are, in addition to being a great storyteller, and we'll get into that in a a bit, you're also a spectacular drummer. And I know that learning drumming did not happen overnight. And yet, as you drum, it's as if you're inviting the listener to this of the story to go down. That's the feeling I get. It's as if you're saying, come down so that you can look up and understand the story or that you can descend into the earth, eat some earth, feel it, taste it, understand it more deeply. I wonder, does that resonate? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, well, so I learned hand drumming. And, and traditional hand drumming, African, Afro-Cuban, few other styles. I'm not a spectacular drummer. I know In my opinion, you are. <laughs> I know spectacular drummers. Okay, fair uh, enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So, so, but what happens in, when you wrap yourself around a drum and, and begin to play in, in uh, yogic terms, you're awakening the lower chakras. Right. At, which are the, where the creative energies are. And, and it's literally happening. And, and sexuality um, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it connects to everybody. Everybody gets pulled in. And some yeah. people think drums are the oldest instrument and clearly connected to the rhythm of the heart. Oh, and modern people have, uh, according to the science, because they can study everything. <laughs> and, and most modern people have erratic heartbeats. Erratic right. heartbeats. Arrhythma. Arrhythmia. Arith- yeah, we're we're yeah. out of touch and we're not mm-hmm. centered enough. And so as soon as you're near the effect of, of hmm, this lot, certain kinds of drumming, because the rhythms are inductive and seductive, uh, you can be pulled into a coherent heart, they call it, a coherent heart. So that happens. We get pulled lower into our body, which is good for most people. Um, and then quick story. You mentioned a story and here came the story. So. Great. There's a Native American story. Uh, several tribes have it. 
where um, the different tribes had gotten into battling again. And it happens. And usually happens between the tribes that are close together. <laughs> That's usually how it goes. Mm, right. And, uh, and it was getting really bad. And people were not just being opposed to each other. They were calling each other evil. And it was getting really bad. And everybody, everybody's getting discouraged and worried. And so some people said, we need help. And so they decided to go up into the mountains because they knew that in a cave up there was considered to be the oldest being. So interesting, as I'm telling it, there's a story mm. like this in ancient Ireland, too. Mm. And up in the cave is the old grandmother eagle, and she's considered to be the oldest being. Uh, the fact that she's in a cave is a reference to being inside the earth. So mm. here's this high-flying bird that's inside the earth. So they're bringing together symbolically these two theoretically separate things. And they go up and they, you know, they bow and they, and they say, we're doing it again. We're really wrecking everything now. We're ruining nature. We're ruining society. Everything is going really to hell down there violently. So what do we do? And the story says she took out her heart and gave them her heart. And they said, bring this down and put it in the middle of everybody and learn to play it. And so they bring the eagle's heart from the oldest ancestral being down to the middle everyone comes together it turns into a drum and that's the big drum that you see so many tribes using to bring everyone together so that was a little story that, that oh, that's absolutely brilliant and calls forth your irish roots somewhat yeah that was in there too the irish have the similar idea of the ancient beings oh. and you go to them when you're in trouble but that's a move of imagination that's the imagination Mm. And just to kind of play off the concept of imagination, uh, Daniel Gilbert out of Harvard uh, was asked the question that a lot of social scientists are asked at some point, what differentiates humans from other beings? And his answer was that we can imagine a future. And imagination is such a critical and uh, just a both a symbolic and literal hallmark of what it means to be human. Uh, so having that and anything yeah. that we can use to help midwife that most crucial of human abilities. Um, and to do that, yeah, go, go for it. Piggy, piggyback a little sure. bit. So I heard somewhere when I was growing up, um, and I grew up in New York City, Manhattan, and in, in the inner city, so to speak. And so I wasn't that aware of nature or animals and all. But I heard what someone say, that animals anticipate the dawn. And that just stunned me. The idea that animals have a sense of the future, that they're anticipating light and dawn. And so that stuck with me. And as I got older, I realized that means that there's an animal embodied part of us right. that anticipates the future in a way. And so the old idea is if you step into the river of life, then flowing towards you in one direction are all the old ideas and all the old imaginations. You just have to be in the river of change long enough and learn how to be there. We were previously calling that the liminal space. Mm. But if you're in that river, visions of the future come to you as well. Turns out that the word prophetic <laughs> doesn't mean predict the future. It means to be in the present so much that you uh, things from the past arrive to where you are and things from the future arrive to where you are. In other words, 
um, there are ways to anticipate the dawning of the society that's on the other side of the rite of passage. And if we can struggle with our own little wounds, not that they're necessarily little, but I mean our own wounds and our own fears and all, we can be one of the receptors, you know, not some big vision of the future, but some idea that could be really important for healing, for implementing social change. It's trying to get to us. The future is trying to find us. Just an idea. And it's more, all the more salient right now. I actually heard you mention this to the uh, science and non-duality community about that this time is an anticipation of dawn. And if, if I recall correctly, and that was just such a beautiful way to describe this liminal space that we're inhabiting, uh, that's very difficult for many to tolerate, uh, this, uh, just tolerating this ambiguity. But this, you, you kind of couched it in that idea of anticipating the dawn. The old idea was called the life death renewal mystery. Life death renewal mystery. The story that we're all in. And, and, and the thing was that ancient people had, because they lived so close to nature, and nature operates on life death renewal, the forests do. Uh, when the shutdown happened for COVID and pe- people were mostly staying home, the skies cleared. Mm-hmm. All birds came back. Right. All kinds of things happened as if to say, this is how nature can do it. Can the humans do it? Can we learn to do it? We got a big, I remember going out at night, night after night, because the stars were so much more clear. And I would just spend part of the time out there and I would get all these great ideas and images and stuff because it was there and it happened very quickly. So the notion is that nature is change, can change. The question is, can human nature now change so that we are, I call it agents of creation rather than contributing to the, you know, the destruction or the diminishing of the world? You know, you're talking about the capacity to listen. We're hearing a lot about listening right now more than ever before. Listen, listen. And one of your great stories that I've listened to, oh, I don't know, maybe I'm not exaggerating, Michael, three dozen times and have told it to my children and wife. I've I've done my best renditions of it, uh, The Water of Life. And it talks about three brothers off to seek a healing potion for their ailing father. Uh, The first two brothers are not willing to get off their horse to take advice from a dwarf because the dwarf was seen as too low and therefore not worthy of listening to. And of course, the third, as it all happens in threes, does submit. He gets off the horse and thank God because he gets everything he needs by going down. And uh, you've also mentioned that the crazy thing about listening to it, it, just even in preparation for this interview, I listened to it yet again, as if I haven't listened to it already at least twice this year. Um, I always get something new. You, and you, you promised that. You said that a detail will grab you. And it's as if I'm hearing a different story Every time I listen to The Water of Life, which, by the way, folks, is available both at Michael's website and available at Audible and probably sounds true for all I know. But all I can say is I and I recommend it to many of the people who come and see me. And everybody says the same thing. Uh, they listen to it multiple times. They, they glean. Uh, but I want to go to this idea of a detail within a story. Um, 
grabbing you. Uh, what, what are your thoughts of that? Well, this is the dynamic of imagination. So, um, uh, so interesting to me. You know, I got pulled into the world of story. You've heard that story. When, oh, when I, I love that story. I hope that yeah. when, when I was 13 and, and, and it's this endless realm. <laughs> and and uh, I've been in the story of the water of life hundreds of times, and it's still new to me. <laughs> and and because uh, what happens is the psyche is moving and changing all the time. So just in the way we get more dreams and new dreams all the time, uh, because our psyche is changing. Right. So then the 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 realm of story is like a it, it, it's almost like a dreamscape. Yeah. And so you just sit and listen to a story and, and imagine. Uh, traditional people would hear the same stories over and over again. They weren't like, you know, waiting for the new Netflix uh, <laughs> flick to drop. They had the story because they knew they were changing. And so, uh, so the way I started to think about it, story means storehouse. It's one of the meanings of the word. And, and the really important things in life cannot be completely lost or be forgotten. And so when they fall out of use and out of people's awareness, they drop back into story. And so inside stories, you can find the things that people forgot. And uh, so then, so, so then the detail becomes the way, the, the thing through which my life now connects to that story. And since my psyche is changing all the time, uh, you know, just like you were saying, sometimes it's the dwarf and, and, and I just hear the word dwarf which is now an important word for me because of that story. And a dwarf's a really interesting thing because a dwarf is small and looks like a child, but it's old and wise like yep. an elf. And the dwarf is a symbolic representation of someone who's in one direction deeply connected to nature and in the other direction deeply connected to spiritual imagination. And so uh, that starts to mean for me then I'm, I'm looking for dwarf experiences when something extraordinary that other people might think is dismissible mm -hmm. is giving me an opening to understand my life better or the world better and uh so i call that the detail and so i tell stories and and i'll tell certain stories over and over i try not to wear them out but while i'm telling it for the hundredth time i get a, a new connection to the story because in the meantime, well, I'm telling it. Yeah, the stories are alive for the storyteller. Or sure. another way to understand it, if it's live storytelling, the story comes alive between the teller and the listener. And it actually exists in, in between. In and, that liminal space. And I think I mentioned that um, symbols speak to everyone differently at the same time. And so a person can only meet a story with their life. Because the story doesn't tell you what the emotions are usually. We bring the emotion. And like I, what we were saying earlier, if there's a dog in the story, often it's not described. So each, you know, people are providing their own poodle or their own <laughs> People have their own inner dogs that are just waiting right. out. And uh, so there's this tremendous dynamic of stories that uh, gives this world the realm of imagination. And it's not, it's not a, an escape realm. It's actually an awakening place. And one of the problems of the modern world, and one of the reasons everybody is so easily divided now, you just take the mask and put it out there and people get divided over it. It's like a negative magic thing going on. But um, well, one of the problems is what we're not in the same story.
people actually think they're in different stories. Right. And, and, and we can't solve communal problems and collective problems if we think we're in different stories. And so one of the medicines now is to find stories we can all be in. Um, because a community without a story cannot hold its unity. We need a collective narrative. Um, and I, I think you said it so well. Uh, it, it, in various times of crisis, for the most part, one of the great features of our society has been living under the same narrative to some extent and rowing in the same direction. And right now we have so many rowers going so many different directions that it's difficult to keep track and they're, you know, fractioning and fracturing. Um, I, I want to go back to the idea uh, just for a second of the dwarf because um, it's so great. Um, and how uh, even in Game of Thrones, the most important character was the dwarf and how he's a bit like the eagle who dwells in the cave in that he is a juxtaposition of two things. He's the wise old elder and the wise child. And the eagle was, as you mentioned, both an aerial and a terrestrial being. Um, that's just so, so great. Uh, and yeah, I, 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 going back to the mask, yes, we need a shared narrative around what the mask means and that the mask even reveals who we are as someone who cares for another. That would be my proposed meaning. I don't know how that lands with you. That's a brilliant meaning. Um, So when people try to figure out practically speaking, like some people are saying there's science that says the mask doesn't actually work. And then other people are saying, well, no, it's not a matter of it protects you necessarily, but it keeps you from spreading the virus. Uh, and, And then people go round and round. And nowadays people think that's really thinking just to find the piece of it that you intrigued with and then argue for that piece. But what you said is much closer to it, I think. If everyone was wearing a mask, uh, it, the, mess, the symbolic message would be, we are all protecting each other. We're all in it together. We're all willing to be uncomfortable. We're all willing to be not even sure, is this working or not? We're just doing it because we're doing it together and we're protecting each other. So the symbolism um, could work, but uh, there's some loss of imagination on a wide scale where, uh, uh, you know, people nowadays are proud of their ideology. And to me, ideology is what you grab when you've lost your imagination. You know, ideology is by its description narrow and and it's going to be opposite ideas all the time. We can't afford that now. We need these, these bigger images. Um, so I don't know where it goes, but it shows you that we're in such opposition uh, that even a potential unifying symbol becomes polarized. Exactly. And so we're just not there yet. We're just not there. And I don't, I don't know how much tragedy it takes for people to realize down at the bottom in the ground of humanity that we are all suffering that part of our souls understands when it says a thousand people died yesterday that actually means something part of us does feel that and maybe we're just having to suffer enough that we awaken more to uh hafez has that idea that i come to life to see that moment when everyone 
seeing the sword realizes there's only one flesh to wound. That that's a mystic, mystical understanding of what it means to be in it together. That w- humanity is its own body, and we have to include everybody in it now. For one thing, and then we have to. There's a way in which the something like a pandemic is a wake up call to understanding health and the meaning of health. Uh, you know, not just health insurance, but the idea of having healthy people. And in there right now is the idea is, is if some people are not allowed to be healthy because they're kept in poverty or something, then it makes everybody else less healthy. Right. That's, that's what a virus shows. So the lessons are there. Um, very difficult um, in cultures where people are raised to think that they're strong individuals and yet somehow they're also not initiated. Very hard to figure out how you build uh, the sense of meaningful community and even, um, you know, inclusive humanity. We're in a humanitarian crisis because our job is to be humans. If we can be human more, we'll be able to help with the climate crisis if we could be more human. Absolutely. And one of the other threats is that kind of idea of excluding others from who we are, this separating ourselves. And sadly, science is showing that there's a dark side to oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, the one that feels so good after we hug. Uh, Our endogenous oxytocin is actually released when we identify more strongly with a subculture and have an us and them mentality. So we actually are fighting against our our own biology, at least that's what I got from uh, Dr. Sapolsky's work out of Stanford. So it's, it's, it's hard. And simultaneously, one of the things that's been on the decline, uh, at least before COVID, was the attendance of live shows. And you were talking about that powerful, unquantifiable dynamic that occurs, but unequivocally occurs in the presence of gathering and, uh, and, and performance in that dynamic between storyteller who is deriving meaning from the story itself and the community receiving it. And I can't help but think that there's something spiritual, perhaps even pheromonal that transpires in the dynamic. And we need that, uh, right now more than ever, uh, when it comes, I'm just seeing this in juxtaposition with the, uh, the need for the mask and the narrative around it and the need for us to somehow find a way in the midst of all of these challenges to come together and to create that magical human experience. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the alternative is. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't think that there is an alternative. I just think we're painfully stumbling towards the realiza- realization on a cellular level that we're in this together. And, you know, going back to the dwarf, the dwarf represents the other, you know, and this is that famous thing where um, uh, people who are insecure are overly defended against the stranger. Whereas in, in a stronger um, sense of humanity, the stranger is often the one bringing the missing piece of information, the idea and the medicine. You know, because medicines comes from different places in the world and different kinds of trees and plants. And there are medicines over there that people over here need. Someone has to bring them. 
And so uh, they had all these old traditions where um, if you were going to have a wedding, uh, a wedding, the ritual of a wedding is two people being willing to come together, each representing an opposite side of something. And in in that union, everyone comes together. And at a wedding, some laugh and some cry because all the emotions come up. And it used to be that at a wedding, everyone could remarry each other if they were already married because it was a conjunctio ritual. But one of the rules about a wedding was if a stranger arrived, you had to welcome you had to welcome them or you would bring a, a reverse spirit into the into the marriage. And so in many cultures there's a place set for the unknown guest as a reminder of sometimes it's the other that makes things come back together. Mm. And so, you know, so we're in all these kind of struggles to find this greater imagination of what it means to be human. And I think the times we're in requires that we relearn that human nature is not divided from nature, it's connected to nature. Human nature is our way of being natural and connected to nature. So, I mean, in that sense, it's a time of potential revelation and great uh, you know, great possibility of of awakening and understanding. It's just, if you look at it through initiate initiatory process, it means there will be pain, th- that growing pains are required. And I want to add again, this idea that what we're looking for is trying to find us. If it's just us trying to find it, we're back in the heroic model. Mm-hmm. And the heroic model keeps us getting in the same separated problem. So the, the, in, in a lot of stories, it's, it's not that you have to go all the way and you have to achieve it all. You only go part way. And it turns out that the other world was coming to us mm. and just had to get to the edge of what we were able. And then the rest of it is coming towards us anyway. So I don't know. I can't prove that. I just like that a lot better than thinking it's hopeless and helpless or that I have to be, you know, so heroic to accomplish it. Something's trying to find us. The animals anticipating the dawn, mm. the dawn on its way, <laughs> something of that kind. And the welcoming that we must embody as it comes to us, that we have to see it, recognize it and say, this is, this is in fact the medicine, if it is. So another aspect of I'm just immersed back in all this initiatory stuff because mm. I really think we're in that ground, like it or not. And so there's uh, an idea called the eyes of initiation. So when we're first born, we have the eyes of the infant and they open and they open wider and, and we see the world, you know, as it seems to be. Um, and, and, and we're taught to observe it in some certain ways. We see the way we're taught. And, and ultimately, people see the way they want, or they see what they want. But in the rites of passage, this opening of the heart opens the eyes in the heart, or the, they call them the eyes of initiation, which sees the world with different eyes. Mm-hmm. In other, uh, I mean, to me, this is so fascinating. The idea is everyone has a worldview trying to awaken from within the heart, and that when we can see from there, we see a bigger world. We see a greater worldview. And so if it's trying to come to us, if the next 
society, a more humane, humanitarian society is coming, then our job is to open our eyes so as it gets closer, we can see it. We don't have to define it. We don't have to have the strategic plan for it. That stuff doesn't work out very well. Mm -mm. You know, it's like the ego's plans. Mm. They all crash eventually. So it's really something trying to come to us, but we need to open the inner eyes to see it. We, we need, um, collective humanity needs a greater worldview. The current worldview is destructive to nature and to culture. And now it's just polarized. So we need this opening of the inner eyes, which are the eyes of imagination. You know, I'm wondering what that might look like. You've also talked about confirmation bias, about how we tend to look for supporting evidence for what we believe in various channels. And it's not very hard these days. You can just Google something and somebody will support it, even if it's complete fallacy. Uh, and of course, conspiracies, which are similar that we often don't uh, think of horses when we hear hooves, we think zebras. And in fact, it's actually horses. Um, I find myself wondering if you had the capacity to compose a benediction of sorts, a, a prayer that would uh, allow humanity to open up to a greater truth that might be akin to the water of life. What would it sound like? Well, so I don't know. For In the current moment, there's a paradox. It's a necessary paradox. Uh, and Imagination is required to allow it to be present. And, and, and to me, one of the paradoxes is each soul born is unique. Unique. It will never be born again. That's right. Right. And, and the poets talk about it. You know, um, you know, each raven is different. Each tree in the forest is different. Even if it's a tree and they're all a forest of redwoods, each redwood is different. Everything that is created and comes into the world is unique in its own way. So the uniqueness of the person has an essential quality to bring to the world. So, so the paradox, I think, is the uniqueness that we, by virtue of being born human, the uniqueness that we have has to become more conscious in us at the same time that the collective community sense has to get broader. The two things have to happen at the same time. Uh, so one of the reasons I like the, the concept of genius is genius is another way of talking about the uniqueness of the person. The genius isn't just the talent or the high IQ, not at all. It's the unique combinations of abilities and capacities and gifts that's in that person. Um, each time remade for that life experiment, that's the notion of genius. So, so the genius is very unique and individual, but the, the gifts of the person are only fulfilled when they're given to others and usually given freely. And so, so you have this dichotomy or paradox. Uh, nowadays, people expect to get paid for their giftedness. I mean, because it's all considered to be um, that kind of marketplace. Sure. But really, if a person... What a person has inside of them has to be given freely. If you get compensated, that's a bonus. Um, and then it turns out that when it comes to the genuine gifts of the soul, the more it is given, the bigger it grows. It doesn't diminish by being given. It increases. Yep. And the only way it can be given or the only place it can be given is to other people. 
So the community is there to receive the unique gifts of the individual and accept them, acknowledge them, and bless the people giving them. Uh, and so that's what the genius inside us needs is acceptance and welcome on the part of the community. Um, and then on the other hand, um, the genius needs the community. The, the, Absolutely. The so we're in this kind of tricky thing. Um, but I think it must start with from deep within. I think it. we can't make a community, and if we find one, we can't control it. Right. So what can we genuinely, authentically work with mm-hmm. is what we've been given, the gifts we've been given. And if we can do that, we have a better chance of finding community. We have a much better chance of contributing to community, and we have a chance of being blessed by that community, which puts us back to the Greek idea of eudaimonia, the happiness of the genius. Yep. Uh, and then we know we're contributing to right. life and to community. And then, then we just have to learn the other half is how then on the other side to be a community participant. Um, I've worked for decades in retreats with the idea of communal healing. Um, and it came out of a story for me. And, and so then I wanted to try it. And so, um, so particularly when we're working with at-risk youth, um, they're so courageous sometimes, and they'll just start pouring it out. Mm. They've almost all been abused. Something mm. happened, you know, and they're pouring it out. And, um, and then the people who are present only need to have a song and an open heart. Yep. You listen like you were talking about, and you listen from the empathic depth of the heart, mm-hmm. which pulls the story out. So now the pain has come out in the story, and then all we have to do is, at the right moment, begin to sing to that person, which is a way of pulling them from the deepest pain into harmony. It's a way of blessing them for being so courageous mm-hmm. and so being deeply human, because when someone shows you their pain, you know them as a human. Unless you don't know your pain, then you want to get away from them. But anyway, so now we're singing to the person who's the, in, in, in the greatest pain. And the surprising thing that happens is as you sing to them in an attempt to connect, to bless, and to help heal that pain, your own pain gets healed. Giving. The giving of the healing energy heals the healer heals the one giving and you can just do it. It's not even that hard to create. And so we call it sudden community and it can't last that long. That's the nature of community actually, or deep community. Uh, but it's easy to revive again. And so one of the things I struggle with is we found ways to do that with, you know, anywhere up to a hundred or so people. Um, if people are honest, it's not that hard, but I don't know how, you get it beyond that. I honestly don't. And one of the paradoxes now is we can't even come together for healing. So we're in this very unusual psychological state where I guess we're supposed to attune ourselves to the longing for community before we get near it again. But uh, anyway... It's a tricky time to be alive, but I think the issues are about healing 
and finding the Latin word is communitas. Not the community because people are near each other, not the community because they agree on something, but communitas where the feeling is so deep, it pulls everyone together regardless of what they think, that we just become human because of some deep pull. Communitas and compassion. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, people singing to each other, uh, almost in healing each other, both the singer and the recipient is being <laughs> yet a cousin, just to bring it up again, of wearing the mask uh, during this time. It's, it's a sign that, you know, that I, I, my, my actions can be healing or at, at least prevent, um, I say cousin, because it's more of a prevention tool in this case. But, uh, and I'm also thinking of an ancient uh, Jewish tale in which a man dies and goes to the next life and he's given the option of heaven or hell. And he says, I'd like to see them both. And he goes to hell and lo and behold, it's a big banquet with incredible amounts of food. You probably know the story and all the people show up with long arms that are basically shovels. And the man thinks this could, this is hell. And lo and behold, it is because nobody can actually get the food into their mouths. They go to heaven uh, for the second, and it's the same thing as it was in hell, same banquet room, same people coming out with shovel arms except they're feeding each other. Yeah, and you're smiling and nodding yeah. as I'm telling the story. Says, obviously, you know the story. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a great story. Yeah. yeah. And um, really, it reminds me, I, I had, had the good fortune on Zoom recently of meeting a, a native uh, elder from Alaska. We were on the Zoom thing together, and he was speaking in the native language, <sighs> and which is really beautiful and compelling to hear. And then he said that what I, what I just said is, uh, welcome. I see you. You are the other me, <gasps> you know, which is the same thing you find in Africa. They have a similar thing you can find. It. So, yeah. So brother from another mother, you are the other me. The, yes. There's but even more than brother from another mother. It's even deeper yeah, than that. You are me. the other me. <gasps> yeah, so it's it's not us and them, it's you are the other me. You are the other me. And we have to learn how to feed each other. So uh and and it's it's a beautiful story. And and when you were telling it, it was making me think, yeah, the difference between heaven and hell is is minor. Minor. <laughs> it's uh, you know, so in these times we're closer to hell. I think everybody might agree on that, but that means we're closer to heaven. If we can get that capacity have a greater imagination like the greater imagination there is that we are in a meaningful place to nourish each other mm. i think ultimately to heal each other in, in kind of building on that idea michael we were talking earlier before the recording about the paradox of uh uh my perception of you as being one of the most truly learned men I've ever come across in my life. And I apologize if that makes you uncomfortable for me to say on the recording, but um, I'm thinking about uh, uh, just so many things right now, including uh, how our, our conversation has almost served as a bridge for several of the people with whom I've spoken last week. I spoke with Temple Grannon, who was talking about the importance of neurodiversity in the workplace and that an autistic person with visual insight might notice something on an airplane that would save lives. And without that autistic person on the team, people could die. And then I'm thinking about how no tree is alike, as you were just saying, and no being is alike. We're all unique snowflakes. 
And James Hollis uh, a couple of weeks ago said, nature doesn't waste energy. And how the presence of all of these trees was created by nature and therefore necessary. And we need to give birth to the daimon of each of these entities. Uh, otherwise, they are really not fulfilled in their lifetime. If that, that dash between their birth date and their death date does not include uh, an initiation and a recognition and the inconvenience of recognizing the authenticity. And I'm calling it inconvenience because it is, it is actually work, sometimes painful. Uh, as you were saying, uh, these rites of passages uh, don't come easy. They actually usually involve sacrifice. A lot of people are trying to tattoo themselves uh, as, a, as a proxy I believe for many of these, in many cases, they're very meaningful, but um, I'm, I'm thinking that we're lacking something. And I'm seeing that in juxtaposition with the fact that American universities are educating people at a higher, I'm using that term very precisely, higher level than ever before. And that's a great thing in many ways, um, but many areas of life are not being covered by our curriculum. And it seems that more ancient traditions had the upper hand on certain aspects of the glaring missing pieces of our education. Uh, and I am thinking about such things as how to become a good parent, how to find a good mate, how to be good, how to be a good member of society in general. And uh, I'm wondering, given your knowledge of the world, how do we bridge this gap? Well, to go back where we were at the beginning, uh, for modern westernized cultures, the movement has to be down. Um, if you use the model of the tree, go back to the tree of life, the roots have to go down deep if the branches are going to grow high and wide. So a higher education is only valuable to a person who can grow down deeper in a different school or a different territory. There was the old idea that we're born in a descent from the womb we come down through with gravity. Totally. I agree wholly. And then the idea was throughout life, we're supposed to keep incarnating. We're supposed to keep growing down. Um, and so uh, I think it's pretty clear. Well, it is to me at least that modern cultures need to descend partially to get rooted in the earth. We are earthlings after all. Why wouldn't we be rooted in the earth? And then partially because the downward movement puts us in sorrow and in grief. And that's the place of communion. As soon as I can see and feel someone's sorrow, their wounds and their grief, I'm with them. I don't have to know them. I don't have to have any opinion about their ethnicity or their history. I can meet them on that ground because I know something or feel something about my own sorrow and my own grief. And so to me, uh, higher education uh, has greater value if there's a learning in depth. And uh, the Greek word for that, one Greek word for it was katabasis, the conscious descending in order to be in the earth. And it's interesting because, you know, people used to go into caves. Uh, the original therapists uh, worked in caves with dreams that happened inside the earth. 
that um, and people used to have um, what would you call that like little cathedrals in the caves uh, because there's something about there's a wisdom in the earth just as there's a wisdom in earthiness and human comes I think from the word humus which means earth and it's also the word from which we get humor and so it'll probably get all more humorous if we can get rooted deep enough and connected through those roots the way mushrooms are connected apparently over hundreds of miles i think that's what we're needing and then the higher education higher education excuse me might have more value wonderful well we're it seems that we're coming to an organic end uh, and i love the idea of the cave for a therapist as a therapist it's funny very intentionally uh, I've incorporated, if you come into my office someday, and I hope that is the case, I've tried to make a cavernous experience. Um, and it's surrounded by earthen images. My name even means, Adam means earth. So uh, I've really, and I, my, my sofa is actually what I call God's baseball glove because it looks like, it looks like a baseball glove and it just kind of comforts you uh, in, uh, after choosing for, through 120 different sofas. So everything you're saying is very validating to me and, and, and what I've tried to do, what I've tried to do, I didn't even realize I was trying to do it until you just said what I was trying to do. Uh, but earth is all around me in this office. So Thank you for that. Um, if you were able, I, and you've, you've spoken around this and you've spoken to this, and, um, and yet I'm going to ask anyway as a final question. If you were to be able to confer upon this planet uh, and all of its inhabitants, individually and collectively, just something that would get us through the dawn to a better, uh, to a better day. What would it be? Well, it's interesting. You know, I just go by what I've learned as a storyteller. Uh, to me, storytelling has a lot to do with spontaneity. So I know the shape of the story. That's the first part of the job. Find the stories or be available. Sometimes they find me. Mm -hmm. But then the next part of it that I've learned is I don't rehearse or recite. The story has to be told as I am who I am in the moment. So the story's coming out differently every time. Um, and so that has made me accept spontaneity and accept the presences that are present but not seen. And so that leads me to, um, this is a statement from William Blake, who is like an ancestor to me, um, you know, uh, one of the practices I like to do is figure out what or who your lineage is you know since we're mostly people that are freewheeling or and, and the lineage isn't clear but you, so that gives you a little bit of choice and so william blake is as far as i'm concerned i've drafted him into my lineage and for years i've carried around this statement and it just comes to mind uh at times and it just did and that is um every day has a moment of eternity waiting for you and so the idea is that there's 24 hours in a day the night and the day uh we all go through it uh in that way but there's a moment of eternity waiting for us in the night or in the day somewhere and that moment of eternity is moving you, you can't schedule with it you know it picks its time uh, but it means that even when 
things are deeply unjust and there's a lot of tragedy and sorrow, the moment of eternity is there. Even when there's the pandemic and people are getting sick and unfortunately people are dying often unnecessarily now, uh, still the moment of eternity is there. And even when the entire planet is out, out of balance and, and uh, nature is being harmed and diminished, the moment of eternity is still there. And the moment of eternity is our connection from our unique soul to the eternal world, the mythic world, the world of imagination, the world from which all creation comes. Every day has a moment of eternity waiting for each one of us. I would go there. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of speechless. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I know what you're speaking of. I hope the listener will see it when it shows. Uh, I think there's so much, so much goodness there. Um, so much uh, that can propel us towards our best selves uh, if we're able to embrace it. Michael, I just cannot thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me today. You are truly just, uh, just a treasure in my life. Always good to be with you, Adam. Good to see you. Good to hear you. Be well. Be safe. Be courageous. See you down the line. Most definitely. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 